Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everybody. I'm John Corker. We've got a double feature in store for you this week as our special guest, Dr. Marshall Wolf, was just too darn interesting to restrict to 15 minutes. Welcome to Radio Rounds. Dr. Wolf is known as one of the most esteemed internists in the country, but he's so much more than that to the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He has dedicated his life to both the teaching and practice of medicine and is one of Harvard Medical Center's most popular clinical instructors. He served as mentor to many of today's most inspiring physicians, including my own heroes, Paul Farmer and Jim Kim of Partners in Health. But Dr. Jeffrey Drazen, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, probably puts it best when he says, Dr. Wolf makes medicine fun. In part one of this two-part series, Dr. Wolf sits down with Radio Round's host, Lakshman Swami, to share stories about medical education, both past and present, his innovative role in pioneering primary care-focused residency programs, and the powerful wisdom in the words, I don't know. Lakshman begins the interview by asking Dr. Wolf to share his thoughts on what inspires physicians in training to learn the skills they need to be successful. In today's society, with uh, so many medical students and, and residents pursuing a variety of careers in medicine that are branching more and more off into specialized care of patients. How do you feel like that responsibility is being perceived by young physicians? I think that the people in subspecialties, the good ones, also feel just as responsible for their patients. They may feel responsible for their care in, in a narrower area rather than their entire care, but they feel responsible, and that's what makes them a good doctor. I think the concern some people of my generation have is as the hours get shorter that people are in the hospital and each patient therefore has to have multiple providers so that if you're working a 60-hour week and there's 168 hours in the week that really means there got to be three interns involved for each patient. We, we worry a little bit about whether any of those three interns is going to feel this is my patient rather than I'm taking care of this patient till his doctor returns. Dr. Wolf, in your tenure as the residency program director here for internal medicine, you really humanized the program and brought a lot of changes that were uh, at the time very novel to the training of physicians. And a lot of it, from my understanding, had to do with basically treating residents better. Do you think that now with all these duty hour restrictions and everything that things may have gone a little too far and we're losing on that responsibility? Or do you think that there's a way to make this work? I think there's always a way to make it work. I think the answer is we don't know. And the thing that bothers me is that we're not studying it. What we really have is sort of anecdotal impressions of what's going on. And one of the things that does anger me was that a few years ago when I came up with what I thought would be a very interesting training option where people would work the first day they'd come to the hospital, they'd work up till midnight, that was their admitting day, then they'd sleep in the hospital for seven hours, protected time, they're signed out, and then they'd work the next day, which is when the consultants come through. The third day, they'd work a normal, you know, 7.30 to 5 day, and the fourth day, they'd be off entirely. And it worked out to fewer hours than the 80 hours, and I thought it would 
allow them to have much more of a sense of responsibility for their patients and to be there when the action was going on and they wouldn't be sleep deprived and they wouldn't be driving home at midnight or one in the morning when they were sleep deprived and when we know that they're twice as likely to have an auto accident. And the ACGME wouldn't let us study that option. That seems to me bad and that's worrisome to me. I think through the years I often had great ideas to how to make the program better and then we would study them and some of them actually turned out to be okay and many weren't and it seems to me that maybe 500 years ago we decided that we should actually study hypotheses rather than just assume hypotheses that sounded right was truth and I think in the field of medical education now I am concerned that there's a little bit of bringing down the word from the mountain on stone tablets rather than actually looking critically at what we're doing and what effect it's having. I think that's a really interesting way to frame the the problem with duty hours, especially because it really emphasizes having having a, a physician, a young physician in training, be there for that entire care process for a patient. Because I know from my experience, at least as a, as a medical student, there's a lot of times when you leave and you kind of don't hear the ending of the story. You don't hear how things went. And to me, that always seemed like that means you don't know if what you did was right. It seems like we might be going to a point where employed physicians of the hospital, like hospitalists, are caring for more patients, allowing residents to care for fewer patients, but being more involved in that care. Do you think that that might be a new way to go in the direction of teaching? After I left the, the, the directorship of the program, Joel Katz, who took over from me, and some of the other people I trained, set up an intensive training unit, so-called ITU, where there would be fewer patients per resident, more attendings, and more teaching. And that actually has been written up in the New England Journal of Medicine. The real question is, can we as a society afford such an elaborate model for more than a few months a year? But it's a terrific model. And I, I think if we were just trying to train people and we weren't worried about costs, faculty availability, that's terrific. I think we just have to look at what we're doing critically to make sure that we're training people who we will want to take care of our friends, our children, ourselves. That is, are we trained the kind of doctors we hoped we would always be? In my limited training as a, as a medical student, it seems like there's an increasing reliance on technology to make diagnoses and pursue treatment for patients. Do you think that the reliance of technology is generally beneficial, or do you think it causes problems where, for example, the physical exam may not be utilized as much as it could? Actually, the basis of making diagnosis is history, not the physical. And I think as a real doctor, that is when you're not in the hospital and somebody sends up somebody with type 4 Ehrlos-Danlos syndrome, and you're supposed to take care of them. When the diagnosis is made and now they're having a complication of the chronic illness, but in the office where people just come in with a symptom, I think that what's really important is the history and that you use what I would call the clinical method so that as when patients tell you what they're concerned about, you begin to think about what might be wrong, and then you use history now 
asking questions rather than just listening to try and f work through the possibilities and then you do a, a focused physical exam to help you decide what's going on. And then when you're all through with that and you go back after having done the physical because then you'll always have some more questions you really want on history. At that point you may be left with one or two or three things and at that point you may want to use some technology to help you decide between those two or three things. That's really the clinical method. So I, I think technology is terrific at certain points in the in the clinical process, but really history and physical usually should predate that. And the, the lab should be asked questions which you can't s solve with just history and physical. Again, while you were uh, directing the residency program here, you uh, made a pretty innovative step at, the, step at the time and started a primary care program. What were your motivations for doing that, and how do you think things stand now with primary care? A long time ago, when I was a fellow in cardiology, I was asked to be the first cardiologist at a new HMO, the Harvard Community Health Plan. And they had the vision that their subspecialists also should do general practice. So I had had three years of medical residency training and a year and a half of cardiology training when I became, quote, the head of cardiology at this new plan. And in my general medicine practice, I found out that very few people came in with septic shock, acute myocardial infarction, and a lot of people came in with aches and pains in the joint, funny-looking skin, and many other problems which I hadn't really encountered or, be tra or trained very well in, in my inpatient training. And so I had a half day off each week, and I would go and spend time with some subspecialists so I could learn some dermatology, some rheumatology, and some of the other things which were important, taking care of real people as opposed to inpatients. When I, a few years thereafter, became head of the training program here, I thought it would be an interesting option to train people so that they were prepared to take care of real people as opposed to sick inpatients. And that's sort of the primary care program. So a fellow named Bill Branch, who's now the head of general medicine at Emory, and myself, and two people who had started a general medicine practice, two of my former residents, John Witherspoon and Arthur Siegel, got together and we sort of designed a primary care program and we did it incrementally. So we had a we had an idea and we got a couple of reluctant volunteers to do the first were the first primary care residents and then we kept asking them what's good and what's bad and we kept redesigning it. Uh, and the, so when we started out we really we decided everybody had to do a full year of internship and then we would split the junior and senior year six and six primary care and inpatient medicine. And then we found out it's good to have primary care in the first year, a couple of months, and then the third, second and third years to have maybe a little bit less so that we sort of evolved toward the programs we have now. They are wonderful, and, you know, that's the way everybody should be trained. So it turns out they're more expensive than training people in the inpatient service. So I think we limit the amount of primary care we give our internal medicine residents more than we should if it weren't so expensive. That's interesting that you describe it that way because one of the things I've heard that a lot of residents and fellows say is that they who, who have not picked primary care is because it was too daunting, the, the breadth of material that they felt like they had to cover. 
the responsibility that would be on them for you know this this kind of holistic care of these patients how do you feel about that and how do you think that we can address that the good news about medicine is there's always stuff you don't know and you're learning and it is true that we actually studied at one time the growth of inpatient skills by residents and the growth of ambulatory skills inpatient skills is sort of an s-shaped curve and the second corner is about 22 inpatient months after that, their skills don't go down, but they don't go up rapidly. And in primary care, they seem to go up at least for six years. So there are a lot of new things you keep seeing. I think there's nothing daunting about being a primary care physician if you're comfortable in saying, I don't know. Hopefully, that's true in your inpatient as well as in your primary care life. And if you're comfortable in saying that, you learn. And, and it's okay not to know all the answers. It's not okay to be unwilling to admit you don't know all the answers and to go seek the answers which your patient needs for their health care. Thanks again to our special guest and esteemed clinical educator, Dr. Marshall Wolf. To access part two of the interview with much more on the evolution of medical education from one of the industry's most revered teachers, visit our website at www.radiorounds.org. As we look ahead to next week, we're very excited to be speaking with Dr. Howard Butner, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association. He is also the director of the Division of General Pediatrics at the Boston University School of Medicine and the Boston Medical Center. He has had the top position at JAMA since 2011, when he took over for Season 2 Radio Rounds guest, Dr. Catherine DeAngelis. Tune in next week for our conversation with this accomplished physician and medical journalist. In the meantime, you can find new podcasts posted to our website every Sunday as well as a complete list of past episodes for download and much, much more. Visit us at RadioRounds.org. You can also contact our team at RadioRounds via email, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. All of that information at RadioRounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. Radio Rounds is also proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network online at studentdoctor.net. Is an application to medical school in your future? Learn tips for admission success in the new second edition of the Student Doctor Medical School Admissions Guide. Available now in paperback and electronic formats through the SDN Bookstore at studentdoctor.net. Please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds or of the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. Have a great week, everyone. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day we'll be your doctors. Here come the Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds.